for about, I think the past decade, real investment in physical equipment is on a slow downward trajectory. Our thirst for digital gear just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Andy McAfee. Andy's the co-director of MIT's initiative on the digital economy, as well as a principal research scientist at the MIT Sloan School of Management. His research investigates how information technology changes the way companies organize themselves and perform with a further focus on how computerization affects competition, society, the economy, and the workforce. His latest book, The Geek Way, The Radical Mindset That Drives Extraordinary Results, brings together much of what he's learned through that research. It follows prior books, including The Second Machine Age, uh, Machine Platform Crowd, Leading Digital, and Race Against the Machine. Andy, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Peter, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure. Well, Andy, uh, since 2013, you have led MIT's initiative on the digital economy. And what a consequential decade to be at the helm of this, given the mandate that you have. And I wonder if you can take a moment and maybe talk a bit about the genesis of it. What, what, what was the impetus for it, the reason for it coming into being? Uh, and then perhaps we can get into some of the waves of changes that you've witnessed across the past decade in role. You're reminding me that Eric Brynjolfsson and I started the IDE a decade ago <laughs> because we thought that this broad phenomenon of technology changing our economies, changing our industries, changing our societies needed a, a dedicated academic home. So we started the IDE to focus on that. And taking us back to 2013, Machine learning had already by then started to demonstrate remarkably good performance, superhuman performance on a bunch of tasks. And since then, it's only taken over more and more of the AI landscape. We started to have cars that were driving themselves, and we were wondering how quickly the driverless future is going to arrive. We know now, a decade later, the answer to that question is a lot longer than a lot of us originally thought, myself included. But over the past decade, I've had this amazing front row seat to watch technology change the economy. And what we're seeing now with this wave of generative AI is the latest, and I believe most, uh, and a very significant chapter in that history of new changes coming in and transforming the way we work, transforming the way we live, transforming our economies. That's absolutely going on. I, I think a fundamental thing the last decade has taught me is that not only are technologies changing the business world, but companies that are good at technology, and you and I will get much more deeply into what that means, I hope, technologies that are good at using technology are also transforming the business world. And that insight what was behind the book that I that just came out a little while ago called The Geek Way. That's great context. I appreciate you offering that. And I know one of the key observations that you've noted that was a pathway into the topic that would become this latest book of yours is that since 2000, a third of market capitalization gains of all public companies in the US have gone to companies based in Silicon Valley. I, clearly, this aligns, as you know, with the ascent of technology during that period. But the remarkably high percentage will surprise many people who are listening or watching this, I'm sure. What's your diagnosis of this phenomenon, which, as I say, you've noted as sort of a gateway to what became this latest book? And it's pretty remarkable, right? When I did ran the numbers, I 
had to double check them because I wasn't sure they were right. A third of all the market cap increase of all the public companies in America since the turn of the 21st century has happened to companies either founded or headquartered in that really, really small piece of real estate in Northern California. The industrial era heartlands of the Northeast and the Midwest and the oil age companies headquartered in Texas, they're still there. They've been growing, but the action has shifted primarily west and especially to that really small piece of real estate in Northern California. And I wanted to understand what was going on there. Part of the story, and you know this really well, is that if you're selling hard software and hardware and the economy is digitizing, that's a good business to be in. So of course, a lot of the companies that have realized a ton of value are in the computer hardware and software businesses. NVIDIA, for example, is a really good example of that. Oracle is a good example of that. Microsoft is clearly a good example of that. But then I also noticed other companies creating tremendous amounts of value that weren't clearly in that classic digital high space sector. Uh, it's very hard for me to think of Netflix as a digital technology company, as a high tech company, it's an entertainment company. It's about just about as digital, just about as technology intensive as HBO, for example. But Netflix is a hell of a lot more valuable than HBO is now. I think SpaceX is an extraordinary company. It's not public yet, but SpaceX is a pretty extraordinary company creating huge amounts of value. It's based in Southern California. It's got Silicon Valley DNA, but you can't say that it's in the classic high-tech industry. It's not in the computer hardware and software industry. So the phenomenon that I think is really interesting is that the style of company, this approach to running a company that was incubated in the Silicon Valley high-tech sector, that's now skipping boundaries and going into other sectors. It's transforming the entertainment industry, the space industry, the auto industry. There are a lot more industries as you and I come back and continue this conversation in a couple of years, there are going to be a lot more industries added to that list. And I wanted to understand what the energy is, what the mojo, what the secret is of these companies that are transforming, not just high tech, but industry after industry after industry. That, that question is what led to the book, The Geek Way. Yeah. And it's funny, when I first heard about the book, Andy, I, I must admit, I didn't, I guess I didn't really understand the uh, dictionary definition of geek. I thought of it as the pejorative, you know, something you, yeah. you talk about somebody who's eggheaded or unpopular, or, you know, doesn't do well in a crowd, these sorts of things. And, you know, and, one and there's of, one, more than a little truth to all those things. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's a fair point. But I, I obviously, as it's so, uh, it, it's sacrosanct enough to be on the cover of the book, define the term, if you would. And Peter, like you point out, when you and I were young, geek was usually an insult. It was usually leveled at somebody who was way too into computers. I know this from painful personal experience. But in the decades since, that word has broadened out. And I don't think you're insulting somebody if you call them a geek today or if you accuse them of geeking out. That means that phrase means to go deep. You're geeking out on wine or you're geeking out on entrepreneurship or on Star Trek, but these are all things you can geek out on. So part of the definition now means a passionate obsession with something. And in particular, I think a hard problem or a real challenge that requires tenacity. The other part of the modern definition of geek, and I take a cue here from Jeff Bezos, who said in one of his shareholder letters, we are willing to be misunderstood for long periods of time. I love that because it gets at something about geeks. They're not that concerned with mainstream opinion or conventional wisdom or the status quo. They are willing to be misunderstood or unconventional or weird 
for long periods of time. So my shorthand now is not computer nerd for geek. Instead, it's obsessive maverick. And the geeks that I wanted to understand better were the ones that got obsessed with the hard problem of running and growing and succeeding with the company over time in a tough environment. And my conclusion is there's a new crop of business geeks out there and they have iterated and experimented their way into a flat out better way to run a company. The company has received an upgrade because of the business geeks. And I think, uh, especially given the sort of historical norm for the term, if one thought about kind of the the original geek, it would be somebody, you know, in the past 30 years uh, who's deeply uh, involved in technology. You actually make the point uh, that the patron saint of geeks was born in 1870, uh, Maria Montessori. Talk a bit about why she is the patron saint in your estimation. And as you say, in the intro to the book, I call her the patron saint of geeks because she was an archetypal geek. She got obsessed with this really hard, very important problem of how should we educate young children? How do we start putting them down the path of learning things in life? And her solutions were unbelievably unconventional. The dominant model in the late 19th century, and unfortunately, it's still the dominant model today, is the one that too many of us are familiar with. It's a bunch of kids sitting in a desk with a teacher kind of inflicting subject after subject on them hour after hour. That model was pretty well in place by the late 19th century. Maria said, essentially, I don't think she used this phrase. She said, screw that. That is not a good idea. That doesn't work. Instead, we want to give little kids a great deal of freedom and agency and autonomy. We don't want to impose a ton of structure on them. Kids, little human beings are learners. It's what they want to do. And she thought my job is to figure out how they learn, what kinds of things do we need to put in their path that will teach them reading and writing and arithmetic and all these things. And I, she succeeded with it while not turning off little kids' inherent desire to learn. I, I really do believe that the educational system, intentionally and unintentionally, squelches curiosity, squelches our desire to innovate and ask sincere questions, and kind of turns us into a bunch of conformists. Maria Montessori was aware of that. She said, absolutely not. We're going to do something different. And I don't think it's a coincidence at all that a disproportionate percentage of prominent tech folk, tech founders, are Montessori kids. It applies to Jeff Bezos. It applies to both Sergey and Larry at Google. Uh, it applies to me, thank heaven. And there's a Montessori mafia in high tech. I think there's a reason why the companies that they are building and the way that they're going about this challenge of running a company looks a little more Montessori-like than it does grid of desks, new subject every hour. The, the geeks took that innovative spirit and applied it to the work of running a company. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. I love that, the Montessori mafia that you've uh, you've highlighted. And you've, clearly, you're a, uh, a card-carrying member of that as well. Um, you, you, one of the things I also find fascinating about your 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 work and this work in particular, Andy, is uh, that you there's almost like an anthropology lesson to it as well in terms of what makes us humans different. Uh, you know, I think again on the surface it would be things like our intelligence, our, our ability to reason. Uh, you know, different from the rest of the anim animal kingdom. There's some different uh, characteristics though that you underscore as particularly yeah. differentiating. I wonder if you could take a moment and underscore those uh, for, for us here. And to be clear, we are smart. We will 
uh, pass the, the calculus exam in a way that chimpanzees and bonobos will not. But Peter, I'm completely with you. I think that is true, but it's not our real superpower. One of my really pleasant surprises when I was researching the geek way was coming across a relatively new scientific discipline that really helped me understand why what the business geeks were doing worked so much better. The discipline is called cultural evolution. And my very loose way to talk about the discipline is to say that it dives in on the question of why are we human beings the only species on the planet that launches spaceships? You can think that's a dumb question. I actually think that's a really profound question. It's us and nothing else is close. You and I don't expect the chimpanzees or the octopuses or the ants or the bees to launch spaceships anytime soon. That might be cool sci-fi. We know it's not going to happen. But why not? What sets us apart? We've already previewed a little bit. The answer is actually, I don't think not our intelligence. Instead, it's two other things that we human beings have that nothing else has. One is the ability to come together in huge numbers of people who we're not related to and try to accomplish something cooperatively. We are the planet's champion cooperators, especially involving uh, individuals outside our family. The second thing is that we learn faster than anything else on the planet, not even close by far. So you kind of mash those two together and you realize that we human beings alone practice cultural evolution. Our cultures change, they improve, they incorporate, they innovate, they they evolve much, much, much more rapidly than the cultures of any other living thing. And the reason that's a eureka for me is the insight that, wait a minute, what you're trying to do when you run a company is cultural evolution. Innovation is cultural evolution, becoming more efficient, becoming more agile. These are all just different facets of the same diamond. The diamond is cultural evolution. We now have a discipline that studies that process, and we should be yanking all the insights, just taking all the insights out of that discipline and putting it to work for our particular kind of cultural evolution, which is running and improving a company in the face of a lot of uncertainty and a lot of competition. That my, my belief is that the geeks are the world champions of that kind of cultural evolution, and they've backed into a lot of the things that you would do if you read the handbook of cultural evolution. Very, very interesting. And as you point out, this uh, underscores that that iteration is a key point of differentiation for us. And indeed, something you call out, I mean, it's, of course, the, the, the basis of agile practices, uh, but also a key differentiator uh, for the, the geeks and for these Silicon Valley companies that are uh, deriving so much of the value, uh, uh, market capitalization value, as you point out, across the past 23 years. So talk a bit about that that iteration. You, you have under different circumstances uh, diagnosed and written about agile practices and the necessity to incorporate that into the way in which we work. Um, now, as, as your own research has advanced, talk a bit about the importance of focusing on that. One of the coolest stories that I learned when I was researching the geek way is the story of the birth of the digital movement. And it turns out we can trace it to one really particular point in time. In February of 2001, 17 veteran computer programmers, I, I, I'm picturing, you know, Unix geeks with beards and things like that. I think a lot of them actually did fit that description. 17 very experienced, very frustrated computer programmers got together at Snowbird, Utah for a weekend in February because they were frustrated with how software was being written at that time. 
And like you probably know, Peter, the waterfall method was still dominant, which is this very rational kind of linear sequential approach to building software. First, you define the requirements and then you analyze them and then you write them all down and make sure the customer is okay with them. And then you start coding them and you put it through testing. And then when that's all done, you deliver it to the, it's this very, you know, kind of rational linear thing. People are happy with it. They could do each step of it. The problem was it didn't work. The software you delivered to the customer was never what they thought they were asking for. It was always late. It was frustrating for everybody involved. And the 17 folk got together just on a lark to try to see if they could brainstorm something better. And when you go back and read about that weekend, it's fascinating because a lot of the participants said, I wasn't expecting very much. There were a lot of egos in the room and it's kind of a tough problem, but they said it gelled. We got together. We, we came up with something that we thought would work better. And you can go find the agile manifesto website still up online. I think it was posted in 2001 still looks like a 2001 vintage website, but it's still there. And it's remarkable because they said uh, the Agile Manifesto says our goal is to change how we write software via the continuous delivery of valuable software to the customer. And that's just a complete night and day change from the waterfall method. We're going to deliver software, not at one point in time, but continually. And valuable means we're going to get feedback from the customer over and over again. So that was the birth of Agile, and it's led to Kanban boards and sprints and scrums and DevOps and all the you know wars that happen inside that community. But the thing the community is united on is this approach, this iterative approach. I call it the great geek norm of speed, but speed here means cadence or clock speed or pace of iteration. And it works because it accelerates our learning, but at least as fundamentally, it removes the places to hide from a big complicated effort. If everybody is delivering software on a tight cadence and the customer either says thumbs up or thumbs down, that's what we wanted, that works, that doesn't, your ability to be late, to fall behind and not know that or hide that from anybody, that ability has just really, really diminished. And that richness in places to hide that ability to fall behind and not know it or not let the rest of the organization know about it that's responsible for so many screw-ups in the world of big projects so the the geeks have have this century figured out a better way not just to write software but to do big complicated efforts of all kinds and that's why companies as diverse as netflix and tesla and spacex are all fanatics about iteration about agile about this norm of speed that I talk about and they're, they're not going to walk away from it because they know the results work better. Yeah. And so, so in synopsis, you talk about the necessity to plan less, iterate more. Uh, and, you know, I think the, the whole iterative method makes a lot of sense for startups, of course, when, when you're trying to prove the case that this is a going concern, you're trying to get something out, a product, a service, you're testing it, trying to get those initial clients, searching for that initial revenue and so on. Something happens, though, as organizations get larger, where the planning becomes much more focal than the iteration. And, and I wonder what your diagnosis is of that, why some organizations become mired in planning to the point where they can't get out of their way in order to accomplish what you've described that are these iterations that become so valuable. I think there are a few things going on. 
One is that when we were teaching, not from the Agile playbook, but from the playbook built up over the industrial era, the idea was to get into planning mode as quickly as possible, not to eschew it, not to, not to plan as little as possible, but you should have a thorough plan for everything. I, I remember back when there were strategic planning departments turning out five-year plans for everything. In that kind of environment, it's natural to say, okay, we got to get to like a, a waterfall style process as quickly as possible because we have to get this out of control startup-y thing. We have to bring that under control. We have to bring it under adult supervision. That's one thing. Another thing is that we humans are fond of planning. We think we're great planners. I, I planned out how long this manuscript would take to write the geek way. Ask me if I was accurate about that. We're very fond of plans. We're overconfident in our plans to the point that Danny Kahneman, who knows a few things about how humans think, says we are guilty of a chronic planning fallacy. We think we see in the future far too well. We underestimate how long things take in the actual world. And we like to plan. We're just really bad at it. And I think a third big thing is that elaborate plans give people many chances to weigh in or be part of a decision or have veto power or approval power over something. Another way to say that is that they give people opportunities to gain status. And we human beings, we're the most social species on the planet. A high status is unbelievably important and valuable and desirable for us. And so we go around looking for opportunities to get involved and raise our status up that way. That's what a theorist of cultural evolution would say. So you put all that together. It's not that surprising to me that so many organizations got so fond of these planning heavy processes. Uh, and I give huge credit to these geeks who got together and said, you know what, we're, like, we're going to do not that. Um, some level of planning is essential for big complicated efforts, but we're gonna work on the minimum viable plan. And then our solution is to learn and make progress by iterating, iterating, iterating. As I talk to what I would call geek companies versus industrial era companies, it really is one of the most stark differences that I see over and over again. And that minimal viable plan, it's important to note, doesn't mean not having a strategy. In fact, you talk about the necessity of having line of sight with how one's work aligns with the strategy or goals of an organization. You talk, thinking of uh, OKRs, Andy Grove's, uh, you know, uh, uh, foundational principles at Intuit, or the vision, values, methods, obstacles, and measures that Salesforce uses, for example. So you, you speak of of great organizations that have very iterative approaches to how they do things, but still the necessity to call out a north star. Talk a bit about uh, so that we're not. Uh, having people who are listening or watching this uh, believe that that the planning side should be minimized to the point of actually being extinct. Talk about the the critical role that 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 plays. It's really important, right? Because agile does not mean chaos and should not mean chaos, and it doesn't mean anarchy and it doesn't mean do whatever you want. the The hard work, I think, is to figure out what the minimum is in that minimum viable plan. You you need a minimum viable plan. Agile does not mean no strategy either. When I think about the ways that Satya Nadella has added ridiculous amounts of value in the nine years that he's been CEO of Microsoft, he's made so many really start smart strategic moves, including into last weekend and up to today, right? We see further evidence that Satya is a pretty good strategic thinker, but one of the things he did was try to get Microsoft to orient more around a fast cadence, agile approach to developing software. Finally, like you point out, um, to try to keep autonomy and keep fast pace from devolving into chaos, chaos, 
agile doesn't mean no bureaucracy either. The geek companies that I've learned from the most have a very important, very tightly constrained bureaucracy. Its point is to make sure that people and teams and parts of the organization have work that's aligned with the overall goals of the organization. You talk about the V2 mom process at Salesforce. That's exactly the point. Mark Benioff got frustrated when he was at Oracle that he himself didn't know how his work was fitting in with the overall goals of the company. None of his peers or bosses seemed to care that much about it. And he didn't know how to tell his people how their work fit in. So when he was Starting Salesforce, he scribbled down on, apparently, literally on an envelope, V2 Mom, as you just identified. It's the process by which Salesforce asks every part of the organization, says, here's the overall goal of the company. Here's your boss's goal and your boss's bosses. Now tell us how your work fits into that. And it's a yearly or twice yearly process, but it's taken very, very seriously. So the geeks do have minimum vile bureaucracy, they're not anti-strategy, and they're not anti-plan, but they like a whole lot less planning and bureaucracy than we got used to in the industrial era. And yeah. as a result, I think their strategies work a lot better. Yeah, compelling uh, anecdotes there, certainly, Andy. Uh, you also identify in your book four norms of geeks, uh, science, ownership, speed, and openness. And I wonder if you could take a moment and provide a bit of a description of each of those and a bit about why that those are important factors. And we've talked about two of them already. We've talked a lot about the great geek norm of speed, which is this fast cycle cadence and iterative agile approach. We also just talked about the great geek norm of ownership, which is pushing authority down to uncomfortable levels, devolving responsibility and authority, creating really kind of a modular organization. Amazon is a great example here. But Having this minimum viable bureaucracy that keeps these atomized modular teams aligned with the overall goals of the organization and aligned up and down the hierarchy of the organization. So that's speed and ownership. Science for me is just a bunch of people arguing with each other and bringing evidence to the table to support their arguments. That's it. Right. Uh, Peter, like, you know, if you ever ask a group of overeducated people, what is the scientific method, you will get endless hours of debate about that. I love the most stripped down explanation that I've heard, which is that science is an endless argument about the nature of reality, about the nature of the universe that gets closer to answers over time because there's a ground rule for that argument. And the ground rule is, if you believe A and I believe B, we need to agree on a test that will allow us to distinguish between A and B. We're going to go run that test, and then we're going to go abide by the answer. Maybe we'll argue more about another version of it, but we're going to do this A-B testing about the universe that's going to help us understand it better. The geeks are fanatics. Geeks love to argue, like you know. But when it's when that argument is going well, it's not based on charisma or seniority or PowerPoint or who can yell the loudest or be the most intimidating. It's who's got the goods, who's got the evidence. And then my final great geek norm is openness, which sounds vague. Let me give you an antonym. The opposite of openness is defensiveness. And defensiveness comes about when you have a culture that is obsessed with winning and gaining control and being in charge. All those things contribute to digging in your heels becoming defensive, not admitting that you're wrong, not giving an inch, not being willing to pivot. And the geeks look at all those behaviors and say, we don't want that, right? We want an organization where people are vulnerable enough and humble enough to admit 
that they're good ideas, not panning out. We got to do something different. You have a better idea on this one. We're going to go your way. This project is not working out. Or you just got a very smart evidence-based challenge from somebody down lower than you on the org chart. How are you going to respond to that? Are you going to be hostile? Are you going to be defensive? Or are you going to be open and say, that's great. I hadn't thought of that. Thank you. That's really compelling. We're going to go your way. So I put those four norms together. And the great geek norms for me are speed, science, openness, and ownership. Thank you for that overview, Andy. You mentioned earlier that only humans could send a rocket and people into space. You've already uh, offered up SpaceX as an example of the geek way. You have a counterpoint, though, in NASA uh, that you tell. Uh, you, you, you share some perspectives on the way in which NASA operates. Uh, and you tell the story of Will Marshall. And I wonder if you could take a quick moment and uh, offer some, some, some aspects of that story here, which I found so interesting. I've known Will for a while. He's the co-founder and CEO of Planet, which is this cool company that puts up cube satellites, small little satellites. They image the Earth every day, and then they sell that image and the insights that come from it to all kinds of customers. Uh, really cool company. Will started as an engineer at NASA. And when I was interviewing, he said, you have to understand, I got invaluable training early in my career at NASA in this discipline called systems engineering, which the way I think about it now is the discipline of the minimum viable plan. It's a really bad idea to kind of wing it and shoot a satellite into space and try to communicate with it when you haven't thought through how the software and the radio and the sensor are going to communicate. You have to do this minimum viable planning if you're going to have any hope of success in space. But Will told me, that he thought over time, as he spent time at NASA, they were a little too planning heavy, a little too planning centric. And especially as the costs of the equipment go down and you're not putting lives at risk, Will is like, why don't, if, why don't we plan a little bit less and try to iterate more? And he eventually convinced his NASA superiors to let them try that approach. They put a satellite on the moon for about one-tenth of the cost that NASA had been benchmarking before. And they weren't done yet. They got curious about a really uh, interesting question. They said, you know, can you, can you take a picture from space with a smartphone and get the image back down to the Earth's surface? L literally with a smartphone. And the NASA brass at that time said, what are you nuts? Stop. But they actually, I'm, I'm you know, paraphrasing a little bit, they strapped a smartphone to a rocket, sent it into space, had to take a couple pictures. They had amateur radio buffs with antennas trying to get the packets back down. They, The amateur radio operator sent the packets back to NASA. They stitched them together. They got the first image taken from space with a smartphone back down to Earth. And the way Will explained it to me is he said, wait, this thing costs about $500. A communication satellite cost about $500 million. What are those extra six zeros doing for us? Do we need all six of them? And he and his co-founder started Planet on the premise that you don't need all six. And they use off-the-shelf components, smartphone kinds of components. They put satellites together. Instead of launching every few years, they launch every three months with an experiment. If that experiment works, they incorporate everything, all the components from it into the next round of satellites that they launch three months later. It's a completely different cadence of experimentation and learning and innovation. And to me, it's emblematic of how the geeks are running circles around the incumbents of the industrial era, or if I'm mixing my metaphors a little bit, they're just leaving that competition behind. 
Yeah, very, very interesting story told. I really, really like that. It enlightened me, certainly, as you walked through that. I, I wanted to ask you, you know, at, at a time where uh, you've noted that those companies that have had, and at this point, it's across almost all industries, uh, digital native organizations that have risen, almost always, it seems as though the digital native organizations, for a whole range of reasons, cultural and many of the attributes you've been describing, um, are, are stealing market share away. For those organizations, you've mentioned Microsoft as one of those, certainly born before the digital age, though now a profound part of it um, as, as, as a counterpoint to this. But what are some other examples of companies that have successfully navigated their way towards the geek way of doing things and the cultural change that's necessary. Ultimately, this is about different behaviors, different ways of operating, which can be the most difficult change of all. And I wonder if you can highlight some of the, the methods you've seen them use successfully. I wish I could. When I think about the cases I'm aware of, where, as you say, a, a geek has come into an industry and tried to disrupt it, I try to think in how many cases have the incumbents been able to hold steady or fight back effectively. And my list is actually really, really short. I, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I don't have a lot of sterling examples. Like you say, I do stress that it's possible for an old incumbent organization, even one that is mired in some kind of sclerotic bureaucracy and a ton of infighting and a ton of internal politics, that describes Microsoft in the first decade of the 21st century. And the reason I think Nadella has done so, deserves so much credit for unlocking all that value uh, is that he found a way to get them past that point. And he's, as I say, he's made brilliant strategic moves. I think most fundamentally, he has shown that it's possible to take a culture that's not working very well and make it a lot geekier relatively quickly. When I was interviewing, I kept on checking off the things that he was saying against my internal list. And that's that's speed. That's openness. That is ownership. That is a science-based approach. He just took a very geeky approach to turning that company around. I wish I had more examples of that. The incumbents in the auto industry are worth less in real terms as a group today than they were at the end of 2012. And the only company gaining huge market share and massive amounts of value out there in the eyes of investors is Tesla. Uh, SpaceX is running circles around the incumbents in the space industry. One of the reasons I wrote the book was to try to tell the incumbents why this was happening over and over again and give them a playbook for fighting back effectively. If we come back and have another conversation in 10 years, I really want to be able to cite some examples of incumbent industrial era companies that got geekier, that that adopted these new norms and these new approaches and were able to fight back effectively when the geeks came to town. I, I don't see a ton of examples of that yet. Well, as, you, as you've noted, uh, Andy, a number of companies refer to themselves now as technology companies in the fill-in-the-blank in fill in industry, from Goldman Sachs to Under Armour to Allstate to Walmart to Domino's. Uh, some companies we profiled, uh, um, each of us have profiled in different places. Do you find that it's uh, this is more lip service or that it's too early in their journeys towards living up to the moniker uh, to fully decipher uh, success or lack thereof in that journey? No, it's absolutely not lip service. They're investing like crazy. In the early years of the 21st century, U.S. companies as a whole were investing about two to one, not physical equipment versus digital equipment. You know, 
bank vaults and pizza ovens and delivery trucks and warehouses and all that stuff versus hardware and software. Now it's about two to one in the other direction. U.S. companies are spending about twice as much every year on digital equipment as they are on all other equipment put together. In fact, for about, I think, the past decade, real investment in physical equipment is on a slow downward trajectory. Our thirst for digital gear just keeps getting bigger and bigger. So a big reason that I keep on hearing CEOs say that they're technology companies is because it's true. Their investment profile just shows that. These leaders realize that as they become so much more inherently digital as companies, Moore's law starts to happen. Their product life cycles go, go life cycles go down. The pace of innovation and required change goes up. Their customers get finicky, and these really well capitalized new entrants come into their industries. They are aware of all this. One of the things that I'm trying to tell the incumbents these days is the spending the money. That's probably a necessary condition. It's not sufficient. You also have to change your philosophy and your practices. You have to get a lot geekier if you want to stand a chance when the geeks come to town. Your investment is great. Their sincerity is there. They realize that they've got to change, and they've seen so many examples of disruption. That a lot of the executives I talk to are, are very clear that it can happen to them. I think they've been a little bit less clear on what exactly they need to do beyond invest in digital gear to head off that disruption or fight it effectively. And the geek way, my, the book is my answer to that question. I wonder, uh, Andy, if you've had a chance to, to think about the role, uh, so many of the companies you've noted, of course, um, venture-backed unicorns, for example, private organizations like a SpaceX that have grown to eight or nine figures of valuation without yet uh, uh, going public. The role that the eventual outcome, you know, especially for venture-backed organizations, those VCs would like a return on their investment at some point, which typically means IPO or or acquisition. The role that either of those events play in reducing an organization's ability to have that geek way of doing things. One thing is perhaps the more dramatic of the two of those options being the acquisition, where all of a sudden that culture is subsumed by another. And although there certainly are some examples of that going well, you know quite well the remarkably low batting average uh, yeah. for, for M&A. And therefore, oftentimes that's the no in innovation, if you will. Uh, talk a bit about your perspectives there. The geek companies that I'm aware of, some of them are voracious acquirers of smaller companies. Mm -hmm. But when a geeky company acquires a geeky company, that cultural clash probably starts from a lower level. In other words, if Amazon acquires a relatively small startup and somewhere in the in the tech space, when the people come in and become part of the Amazon mothership, they're not going to have to adopt the waterfall method. That's not a thing that they're going to have to do. They're not going to find a classic industrial era bureaucracy awaiting them. Bezos and Jassy and Amazon have tried very hard to fight against that for the company's history. So this process of getting acquired is easier when both parties are following the geek way. A big mismatch comes when a geeky company gets acquired by a classic industrial era incumbent, there, the mismatch, the potential for mismatch there is a lot greater. And I think that's why a lot of these uh, work don't work out as well. I wanted to return to the point that uh, the hallmarks of us humans is that we collaborate in groups, we solve problems, we learn. I, I, wanna, I wonder if you um, uh, would, would love your thoughts on the changing nature of work and where work is done, Andy, and the fact that 
uh, collaborating in groups for so long for everyone's entire career, essentially until March of 2020, was yeah. largely done within offices together with one's colleagues. Of course, in larger organizations, those might be distributed across a great number of offices, needless to say. And, and there are a variety of industries that have always had travel associated with the work that's being done. But 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 on average, that there's a headquarters or home office uh, for an organization and a lot of the people who are doing important work uh, uh, are co-located in those spaces. As you think about the sanctity and importance of collaborating in groups and that that being the, uh, providing the impetus for problem solving and learning, um, what, what are your own thoughts about the way in which work has changed and where it takes place impacting that? I'm not surprised that more and more companies are going to a hybrid model. Maybe not the old fashioned 40 hours a week, all of them in the office work week, but a hybrid model where there's an expectation that you're going to be in person with your colleagues for some portion of the work week, or maybe even less frequently, you're getting together a few times, I don't know if it's a month or a year, and you're spending time together. We humans did not evolve to cooperate, collaborate, form bonds, uh, and learn from each other by staring into screens. Uh, now, I'm not saying that can't happen. And we're getting better at that process, that practice all the time. But we are a ultra, ultra social species. We pick up cues from each other. We learn how to learn from. We form bonds with each other. All this stuff happens primarily when we're physically with each other. That's to be expected for such an intensely social species. And so when I look at what a lot of companies are doing and they're saying, look, you need to be in the office some of the time, I understand the logic behind that. And I think that's correct. I wanted to ask you also, Andy, I mentioned at the outset, of course, co-director of MIT's Initiative on the Digital Economy, a principal research scientist at MIT's Sloan School of Management, prolifer, prolific uh, blogger and uh, writer in a variety of different uh, periodicals. I, I mentioned, of course, and we've been speaking an awful lot about your latest book, one among many. How do you divide up your time? How do you, there's a great number of uh, pulls on your time. And I wonder how you prioritize what, what you're spending each day working on and, and how you divide it among the, the various areas that you focus on. The short answer is poorly. Uh, I'm still trying to figure <laughs> it out. I, I don't think I'm very good at it. But when I get obsessed, my flavor of geekdom is writing books. And I come across a problem or a situation that I can't let go of. I try. I try not to think of it, but I keep thinking about it. And what excites me is when I don't know what's going on. I don't know the answer, but I feel like I could get there. And I feel like it's an important problem. I have the great freedom in my career that I get to wait for opportunities like that. And I get to go work on those opportunities very often by writing a, a book. And then when I'm in the process of writing a book, my day's relatively easy to define. A, a good work day for me is a day when I write a thousand words. And then after I get that done, I, I feel like I'm free to go do other things, to do other elements of my workday. I try to schedule my time so I get that writing done in the morning. And I, I've tried to tell myself, after you've done a thousand words, you can say, well done, pat yourself on the back, and then go do other things. Now, those other things are usually really poorly prioritized, kind of all over the map. Like a lot of uh, people who have too many balls in the air, I sometimes default to whoever is yelling at me the most or who has the shortest deadline. All those are terrible methods, and I probably need to get better at it. But to the extent I have any discipline, it's when I'm working on a book to try to get, that, to get my cadence and to get my thousand words a day done. And talk a little bit about your process of finding the idea that's worth book form. That's uh, having done it a few times myself. That's quite a hill 
quite a mountain rather that you know you're climbing every time you make that commitment. And of course, you have the luxury of surrounding yourself with a lot of smart people of having reason uh, primarily due to the great reputation that you've earned of having a lot of stimulating conversations with people who are shaping the technology and digital landscape. Uh, but talk a bit about your own wanderings and how ideas might, might occur to you to be something that's put in blog form, periodical form, and then eventually that l large mountain decline book form. I wish I could give you an accurate answer to that question. I don't know how I do it. Like I said, my criteria for writing a book is typically, do I have any other option? Can I do anything else? Can I not write? Can I not write this book? And if my answer to that after a period of time is no, I, the, I continue to be intrigued by it. I continue to think it's kind of a big deal that we haven't spent enough time on the topic. If I think all those things are true, and then most fundamentally, when I go for a walk in the morning, if my mind returns to those concepts and I keep kind of picking at it internally, uh, okay, good. That That's the next book. And then I try to marshal resources and figure things out from there. Well, that makes sense. Well, Andy McAfee, it's wonderful to spend time with a geek like you. Uh, for those who are listening or, wa or watching, please uh, do yourself a favor and read The Geek Way, the radical mindset that drives extraordinary results. Surely the phenomenal insights that Andy shared with us today uh, would give you uh, all the more reason to do so. Andy uh, McAfee, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great conversation. Peter, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.